The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Before we dive into this episode of Noggins and Neurons, where we talk about constraint-induced therapy part two, you'll want to listen to part one first because everything will make more sense that way. And in part one, we heard about the history of constraint-induced therapy. Pete reviewed in detail dorsal root rhizotomy, explaining the procedure and how it is a good tool for spasticity treatment for the right person. We learned about reflexes and movement, and we talked about the role of operant conditioning in constraint-induced therapy. We compared the differences between research done by Dr. Edward Taub and that performed by Dr. Stephen Page and Pete himself. We also tied in the importance of home programs and clinic follow-up for client follow-through. Be sure to give that a listen, and we always love hearing from you. Feel free to email us at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com with any questions or comments that you might have. Yeah, although be forewarned, if you have questions, we may read it on the air and uh, on the air. Are we on the air? I don't even know. We're (laughs) we're stuck in the web somewhere. Like WKRP in Cincinnati. Hey, and now for the big sounds in the big town, here with the daddy (laughs) of the radio in the city so nice, they named it twice New York, New York. That was communication. You've been waiting your whole life for this opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the right kind of candidate, um, the commitment required to participate in constraint-induced therapy. And then we had talked about the times that they don't have to wear the constraint, including ambulation, stairs, if they're going to bathe or wash, toileting, and driving. And then I had some other frequently asked questions. What about compliance? We had talked about compliance and how the dropout rate is very low. If you pick the right kind of person, you just got to figure out who's motivated. This is not going to be a simple one. This is going to be very hard on everyone. 
the therapist, the caregiver, and the survivor, but it's worth it if you stick to it. The next frequently asked question I get a lot is, what about hand dominance? A therapist are especially concerned about this because therapists know darn well that people are a lot more motivated to get their dominant side limb back. But understand with constraint-induced therapy, whatever the stronger limb is, it's gonna be constrained. If it's the dominant side, it's gonna be constrained and there's gonna be force use of the non-dominant side. That's just the way it is. It's gonna be a hyper obsessional forced use, forcing the brain into a new and uncomfortable but productive area, and it's gonna be a lot of repetitions. So it doesn't matter if it's the dominant or non-dominant hand. Now, obviously your end point for the non-dominant hand or arm is gonna be somewhat lower than that of the dominant hand, but still you can expect the same sort of trajectory and statistically we can't find any difference. Does it matter where the infarct was? Doesn't seem to matter. No matter where it is in the brain, it seems to help as long as you have upper extremity deficit, constraint-induced therapy doesn't seem to care whether it's uh, on this part of the brain or that part of the brain or in whatever. Okay, does it work in acute stroke? And this was something that you had discussed and you were mm -hmm. concerned about. So we have a very good study that was done very early and it was called the Vectors Trial, V-E-C-T-O-R-S. If I told you how long and how much researchers try to come up with cute names for things, um, what's another good one? Well, the GRASP one that you've been mm -hmm. talking about that we're going to try to get her to, to talk to us on this podcast podcast. Um, cable was one of the ones that we did. Another one was uh, the LEAPS trial for partial weight supported walking. So this one was called the Vectors trial. It was done by Alex Dromerick, a very well-known clinical research for stroke recovery. And he found that higher intensity constraint-induced therapy very early after stroke resulted in less improvement at 90 days. Yep. Hmm. So because it's considered intensive, stay away from that early part. When do you start to do something like constraint-induced therapy? The earliest is when you start to see spontaneous recovery. So it's a couple of things. One, you're seeing spontaneous recovery. You weren't working on something, but it's coming back. That tells you that the penumbra is coming back online and they're subacute. The other thing is make sure that the doctor is saying they are medically stable. Mm -hmm. Those two things at least. But you know, in a lot of ways, this would be a good thing to do during the chronic phases as well. So the yeah. chronic phase is also those people are good candidates. So can we talk about this for a minute? Because we talk about the dosage and the length of time that someone does this. So do they take a break after the time frame is is up? Or do they just continuously do constraint-induced therapy? Yeah. So this gets into a sort of Kathy Spencer question then. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy Spencer was somebody that we interviewed as a super survivor who made a remarkable recovery. And, you know, when are we tried to get her to answer, and I think she did a good job of when are you recovered enough to live your life? And so you could go back and do more constraint-induced therapy. Of course, what I would do is end that dose of constraint-induced therapy, wait a little while, and then do another dose of it and see if you can go stepwise hitting new plateaus every time you do it. Honestly, So that, taking a break is not a bad thing. I don't think so, especially during the chronic phase. During the subacute phase, you would want to recapture the penumbra as it's coming back online. So there's a little more urgency there. Mm -hmm. But during, during the chronic phase, it's all going to be a series of plateaus anyway. So you may as well plateau, take your breath, think about what you're doing, take a good accounting of how much progress you made, and then use constraint induce maybe a more aggressive form to then stepwise go into a new plateau. And maybe you'll mix up your task 
specific activities to be a little bit different, just to add some variety and to make sure that you're addressing those movements that need to be improved. Yeah. So just to review, in the clinic with the therapist, you're going to do lots of repetitions, irrespective of function. When you get home is when you take that new range of motion and you put it into function. And I think that's what you're talking about, that at home, you're switching things up, maybe making them a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And variety is the spice of life, someone has said. So, well, doesn't the brain like a little novelty every now and then? It does. It it produces serotonin and that's always fun. <laughs> yes. Sorry. It's not serotonin. It's dopamine. Oh, dopamine. By the way, just as a tangent. Okay. So well, I've, we haven't we haven't gone down a rabbit hole yet. We, no, but this isn't really going to be a rabbit hole. Oh, okay. It's just a technical tangent. If you want to memorize, I have a mnemonic if you want to memorize the neurotransmitters of the brain. Oh, okay. So I was in a band forever with this guy, Dan. It was the best band I was ever in. It wasn't the band that was signed to a major label, but it was the band that was the best band I was in. His name is Dan Kozak. He's a dear friend. He um, now works for NASA. He's a brilliant guy. And he played guitar. And he played these very unusual guitars, a Rickenbacker. And they were 12 strings. So it's very unusual in a, in a post-punk band to have 12-string Rickenbackers. And I swear, if you went and looked at that Rickenbacker too much, he'd give you the stink eye. He'd be like, do you get it? What are you doing, man? You know, why you need my guitar? But we always re- respected it. It was a very expensive piece of equipment. And uh, so when you write a set list for a band, um, you always have notes about who starts it. And so it, it might say Dan's G on there. That would tell you for that song that he started it with the guitar intro. And so it's Dan's G. That's what it is. So it's dopamine, aspartate, norepinephrine, S is serotonin. And then the G is three things, GABA, glycine, and glutamate. So it's dopamine, aspartate, norepinephrine, serotonin, GABA, glycine, glutamate. Yep. That's great. Thank you oh, for yeah. sharing that. Not too much of a rabbit hole. And yeah. Okay. Cool. So um, just as an aside to constraint-induced therapy, and I mentioned this before, if you do training focusing on the stronger side during the first 10 days after a brain injury, you will worsen future function of the weaker side. That is, that's food for thought right there. Your brain's wondering, what, what do you want me to focus on? I'm in a panic. I'm full of BDNF and there's a whole bunch of brain coming back online. Oh, you want me to work the stronger side? That's what it does. It does what you're asking. So be careful with that. So within those first 10 days, this makes me start thinking about the early mobility therapy that that I was participating in. Sometimes people are in the critical care units for 10 days and we're just, we're literally getting people out of bed and into a chair. Now, some people do okay and, and they can do more activity, but a lot of people are pretty sick during that time. Absolutely. And it is a misrepresentation by a lot of doctors that we should do really a lot of stuff very early as soon as they wake up. That is not true and you can make the infarct worse. So I often wondered about that. And um, because I knew all of that in the back of my mind, I always tended to be a little bit more cautious. So uh, I know we're going to talk about TPA at some point too, but we use TPA at our hospital. Tissue plasminogen activator, the clot busting drug. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Sometimes I forget that there are people listening to us. Um, Hey, even if it was me listening, I would want to, you know, what was that TPA stuff again? (laughs) Um, Yeah, we have protocols around these things. And some people don't pay attention to protocols. And when you're the therapist, you kind of have to. And always keeping in mind patient safety and not wanting to cause more harm than what's already been done. So I did, I personally tended to 
err on the side of caution. So just, you know, when somebody's really had a very serious stroke, we took it a little bit slower in our hospital. That was probably a a wise thing to do. And probably it came from a place of knowledge where you saw enough of this to know Mm -hmm. too much too soon. You're just going to knock them out and make frustrate them. And, you know, people forget after a brain injury, there's often tubes hanging out of everything. The idea of doing a lot is just incomprehensible. Doesn't mean that you can't talk to them and get them to orient towards the more affected side and some other things, but you just can't do constraint-induced therapy. Yeah, no. Sometimes just sitting up at the edge of the bed is a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that could be a major milestone. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what's the best timing for intensive exercise, things like constraint-induced therapy? If you do it during the first seven days after the brain injury, brain plasticity is decreased. So the vectors trial is saying, don't do too much too soon. And we also have research that shows if you do exercise too much too soon during the first seven days, broadly the acute phase, brain plasticity is depressed. So what type of exercise are we talking about? We're talking about whatever it is they consider intensive. So you're saying, Mr. Smith, are you able to bend your elbow? And he goes, yeah, I can bend my elbow. And he's got tubes hanging off of him. The heart monitor's on. You go, okay, I'm going to put a five-pound weight in there, and I want you to do it till fatigue. That's where I would put it. It's almost like a we have Borg scales. We have other scales of fatigue. You're just not pushing it to that level. It, there's a little bit of you know cooking the soup here and trying to figure out what is too intensive. You can base it on blood pressure, heart rate, whether or not they're saying, hey, I've had enough. All those things, I think, come into play. Mm-hmm. So listening to the body is always important, but especially after someone's had a stroke and immediately following that, because people are sleepy a lot of times following stroke. And I I think it's important to wake them up and let them have their time to sleep and heal. Absolutely. So um, my wife is in the other room with her her best friend, who's an OT. And and the OT was uh, Marla. Hey, Marla if you're listening, which she probably won't, but uh, she's come to one of my talks. Anyway, so she was talking about this stroke survivor at her place now who is sleeping the whole time, but she's showing signs of life. And yet the insurance company wants to kick her off because she's Mm -hmm. not showing enough in a timely way, whatever they consider it is. So, and I asked her, was it a hemorrhagic stroke or ischemic stroke? She said, I don't know. I wasn't the lead therapist on this, but if it's a hemorrhagic stroke, you would expect even more stuff hanging out of them things to release pressure in the brain, and then they need to sleep a lot. But their arc of recovery lasts a lot longer, so you can give them time to sleep. Unless insurance is breathing down your neck, which it inevitably is. Yeah, a lot of stuff that uh, we don't understand in terms of the thinking about recovery and insurance reimbursement. Yeah, having insurance making these decisions is weird. Now, she did point out that they will appeal it and they'll Great. probably win the appeal, but still, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's kind of hard to take. Yeah. Well, and we learned from Kathy that sometimes you have to appeal three times. Yeah, because you don't have anything better to do after a brain injury. What else do I no, have to do? You don't. Yeah, yeah nothing. Let's deal with it. In the and, you know, forget trying to recover. Day, honey, let's call the insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> so I told the story before. <laughs> 
about that guy in our ICU who just, he slept for weeks. And then one day we sat him up at the edge of the bed. We put the music on because we saw that he was a conductor and one foot was tapping. So he, he couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to wait. The brain is yeah, like, we are supposed to know what 186 billion neurons are up to. Eh, give it a break. Yeah. And yet somehow the pencil pushers over at Affleck are supposed to figure it out. I don't think so. So we got to advocate for ourselves. And I think that's what Kathy Spencer was talking about. So anyway, if you do intensive stuff during the first seven days, things like constraint-induced therapy, brain plasticity is depressed. But if you do it starting day 14 to day 20 after the event, brain plasticity is increased. So my recommendations acutely no to intensity, but limit compensation. Because if you do compensatory movement early, you will hurt future function of the affected side. So that's the acute during the acute phase. Let's say broadly the first seven days, no to intensity, limit compensation. Subacute, when you start to see spontaneous recovery and the doctor says that they are medically stable, yes to intensity, but also try to limit compensation for that first 10 days. So what are the issues for acute rehab? prevent secondary complications, discharge to optimal settings, and educate the family. I did two talks at Robert Wood Johnson in New Jersey, and they were like within three months of each other. And I go in there, and the place was packed. It was one of those ones where it was total gut check because I'm walking to this room, and it was in their hospital. And I come to find out that everybody there was in acute care. Well, they were at least in rehab hospital, but there was also an acute care hospital there too. And I was like, oh no, you know, that's not my, my strength. But they helped me with this. Look, prevent secondary complications, get them discharged to optimal rehab settings because that's important. Look, you're going to make m- better recovery if you go to a rehab hospital than you will if you go to skilled nursing. That's just the way it is. So you should advocate to get the better stuff. It is, and I know here locally that... The medical rehab units, one of the larger ones in the stroke center actually closed, just shut right down. What? Mm-hmm. So do you, have, do you have a big rehab hospital near you? So there's a couple. There are two major systems. We have the Catholic Health System and Kaleida. And I worked for the Catholics and I worked in a certified stroke center. It was a large hospital. And that's for the Catholics. For the Catholics. That's good. Yeah. Cover your bases. Yeah. Are you Catholic? <laughs> I was raised Roman Catholic. I'm not any religion anymore. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. All right. Good to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was kind of puzzling that they, they closed that medical rehab unit down. They have another hospital. It's much smaller and it has a medical rehab unit and that one stayed open. So I think they just transfer people over there. But I've heard that that other company, the Kaleida system, they have a hospital for stroke survivors and cardiac stuff too. And they're pretty busy from what I've heard. A little short-staffed, you know, not a lot. It's not easy to for OT to see everybody. I don't know about physical therapy there because I don't have any PT friends, but it's just, it's a little overwhelming in the systems right now because of the way that they're just changing things. Mm. So it's tough. And yes, and then the subacutes, that all got changed around with COVID. But I agree with what you're saying about the rehab hospital because people in subacute oftentimes, they don't even, they're not confident 
in handling people who've had strokes. Like, like when I say handle, I mean like transfers and standing and really getting people moving. They're You're kind of afraid. If it's not a, a stroke center. If it's not, yeah. If it's not a rehab hospital, it's a mm-hmm. skilled nursing facility. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think so- there's more people sitting in chairs doing tabletop activities, which oh, breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have a place here. It's called the Drake Center, and um, it's a big rehab hospital associated with uh, UC Health, uh, University of Cincinnati. Mm. And at various times, I work there in the in our lab. They're a rehabilitation research lab, and my wife worked there, mm-hmm. and now my daughter works there. So Ooh. it's all in the family. Family affair. Yeah, so be careful during the acute phase. I think that's what we learned. Hey, Pete, you know what's great about podcasts? Well, a lot of things. You have a world of different options. You can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone, so you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house. Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? It's the fact that when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks on end to beg money uh oh oh no uh oh what we're about to do the same no. thing you know how much work we put into this the research the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through the websites the equipment the editing we just need a little help well how can people help through venmo we have a venmo account and any little bit will help our venmo address is at neurons because of course it is at neurons how much do you think people should give about a million dollars. Come on. Okay, like $500? Are you serious? $50? Let's just put it this way. Every little bit helps. If you want to support Noggins and Neurons' effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery, then $1 million to add neurons. And here's some good news. 20% of everything we get will go to the Brain Injury Association of America, which helps individuals who've had a brain injury, family caregivers, and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, the next thing I want to go over very briefly uh, before I talk about how to code this stuff for uh, the therapists in the audience is constraint induced therapy in children. And we kind of mentioned this. They're casted. It's over the fingers, over the thumb, over the wrist, and up to the axilla. So there's a 90 degree bend at the elbow, and they keep it on for either two or three weeks. And often it's done in a camp format so that every kid there has a cast on one of their arms. Is but- there an age range when they do that? with children do you know it can be done relatively young i would say probably not in the first year but a two or three year old you might be able to get away with it now there are therapists who do pediatrics who have tried things other than the full-on cast but as i mentioned before if you take it off they never want to put it back on because that's their good limb and they don't know what you're trying to do but sometimes you'll see like a sock on that more affected side. If the kid is mature enough, maybe they do understand and they're willing to wear an oven mitt. Look, we're going to really try to do this. You know, I, I don't know how to talk to kids about this stuff, but we're going to really try to work that hand. Okay. You're going to, we're going to turn you into an athlete. For everybody that does constraint induced therapy, you're very much a coach and you're supporting them in any and all movement that they have. And that's with kids, it's a little bit harder because you have to find a game or something that they can play that will motivate them to move that affected side limb. 
Is that considered traumatizing to them? Yeah, we don't care about that. Okay. <laughs> Come on, kid. Apparently, apparently not. You know, there it's been used quite successfully. Um, it, but, you know, whether or not it's traumatizing, it's, that's a good question. I think that's partly why the camp exists, because it may be traumatized if you're the only kid in your class wearing it. But if you're full of other kids got it too, so maybe we'll just have fun at camp and see what happens. All right. So getting the modified version of this um, reimbursed. So you mentioned, I think, therapeutic activities. That's 97530. 97530. If you're keeping score at home, if you're a person with brain injury, right now you're falling asleep because this doesn't matter to you. Therapeutic exercise, which is 97110. I hope they haven't changed those codes or neuromuscular re-ed, whatever that means. That's 97112. That's for your, all of your neurofacilitation. Yeah, well, it, it's a weird term because <laughs> it is it, it, neuro. It's brain muscular, and it's really just the brain. Yeah, I don't even know why the muscle is involved in that. Anyway, moving on. I do have some stuff on lower extremity constraint-induced therapy. Should we go through that? We should. I have some questions. Yeah, or, oh, or, you- or things to think about. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, one of one of them has to do with depression, which. I think is undertreated. It's probably underdiagnosed and undertreated. And I just wonder if more people would be willing to do it if if there was less depression. It's hard to be motivated when you're depressed. And oh, what? I was just going to say, constraint-induced therapy is one of those ones where if you are depressed, you're going to take a beat down. It's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you should probably get your head together, especially if you're chronic You've been at it for a long time. You, you don't even believe that you can get better. And then you're depressed on top of it. It would be a tough road to hoe because of what I talked about. It takes a while for the brain to catch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found another study where they had a collective group of participants and an individual group of participants who engaged in modified constraint-induced therapy. And no surprise, the collective participants did better because of um, the socialization and the support that they received from each other, the strategizing and problem solving through the different movements and all of those fun things. Yeah, I've heard of. So, one of the ways that you can set this up if you're a clinician is you can get 10 stroke survivors in there at the same time and you set up a circuit training kind of thing. This is the pronation supination station. This is the grass release station. This is doing the pegboard, whatever it is. Sometimes you get two people with brain injury at the same station and things get competitive. Because humans tend to get competitive and they'll, they'll talk to each other. Okay, ready, set, go. Wait, you cheated. Hey, look, good. So now competition, everybody wants to win. You're not just competing against yourself, which we encourage you to do. That's what measurement is all about. But that you're competing against, as you say, it's a socialization thing. You're competing yes. against your buddy next, next to you. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of brings me into a point that I wanted to talk about is, can someone start a modified program just based on the articles that you mentioned today? Like if we drop those in the show notes, if if a clinician wanted to do that. Absolutely. And if you need more insight, email us at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. Spell out the end. And I'll, I'll make sure that you get whatever sort of documents you want. I mean, I'll give you so many documents that, and sometimes it's, it gets overwhelming. All the transfer package that Ed Taub loves so much, the motor activity log, all the inclusion exclusion criterion, but I'll give you all that stuff. 
I would say you're probably going to ease into it because you have a stroke survivor maybe requesting it. Yeah. By the way, it can be a way to pull patients in because if you're trained in it, you may very well be the only person in a hundred mile radius that's doing it. And your, you know, your company or your hospital can say, we do constraint-induced therapy. So we have a therapist that's trained in it. So I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times people will ask me, do I need to be certified in constraint-induced therapy? And people do not need to be certified. So how would you define being trained in it? You already are as a clinician. If the stuff you did at school f- sets you up. In fact, this makes it easier. You're doing a whole lot of repetitions. It's kind of boring. And then they do forced use where they take those repetitions and they do functional stuff. It's the same thing I was talking about before, where it's it's exactly what you do. You just put it on steroids. This is one that we cannot afford to overcomplicate. We can't have a certification for it because if we do, we're going to eliminate a lot of therapists. Let's not go there. It's well, super simple to understand. I agree. And you can get creative with this in creating your program. I like what you said about drawing people in. And now, especially... I think advertise for groups. Why not? Start a constraint-induced therapy group at your clinic. If you have a neuro clinic or you see a lot of people who've had strokes or brain injuries, start a group. And you know, if they've maxed out of their insurance, but they still want that coaching. And I think it's an opportunity for your therapists to get people started. And once they know what they're doing, you're, it's more of that group process where they're meeting each other. You're there as more of a coach for them. What you just said reminds me a lot of what they do with Parkinson's. Have you heard of rock steady boxing? Yeah, we have one of those locally. Yeah, it's this yeah. franchise that any therapist can buy. You, you, you basically have access to their website and it helps you start these groups that do boxing. It turns out because people with Parkinson's move slowly and without power, boxing is something that forces you to do quick movement with power. So it's the, and it, and it like does this really great stuff. And a lot of that is having this group of people with Parkinson's come in and do these boxing exercises together. Why couldn't you do that with constraint induced therapy? Everybody throws in 25 bucks per session, like a yoga class, 15 bucks, 20 bucks. You get pull enough people, you set up different stations that people can go through and build this camaraderie reduce depression. Look at us solving problems. I know. You know what's so cool about this is uh, one of the last projects I did for my master's degree was for um, a local trauma hospital where I did my field work. And that's what I made. I made constraint-induced therapy station activities. That's what occupational therapy is. I mean, it's all, it's everything what OT is. And it's just using your therapy brain a little bit more creatively. Should we move on to maybe a little bit of lower extremity stuff? We should. Okay. So there's four options. There's the traditional lower extremity constraint-induced therapy. And I'm going to put the entire protocol that we came up with in our lab in the show notes. Then there's this argument that E-STEM AFOs, so these are like the Bioness L300. There's the Walk-Aid. There's a few of them. And what they do is there's a heel switch. When the person loads the heel switch during what we call stance, that's when the foot is on the ground, the E-STEM goes off. And then when they go to swing their foot through, 
that e-stim at the tibialis anterior, which lifts the foot at the ankle, that allows them to swing through. But it's e-stim that makes the muscle contract. Some people have argued that that's a form of constraint-induced therapy. It is repetitive practice. It just adds e-stim. So if we look at constraint-induced therapy, it was traditionally they did it six hours a day. Don't do it six hours a day. But it's everything that you would do with both lower extremities, but you do it only with the affected side, only with the weaker side. So bicycling, imagine if you bicycled with only one foot. Yes, the foot would be strapped on there, but you would only have one foot doing it. You're doing strength training, but only on the weaker side. And that's because if you're using the other leg, then the brain you're affecting the plasticity in the brain. Right. And remember when we had the bilateral training episode and you made a good case that said that only working on unilateral stuff as constraint-induced therapy is may not be the best way to do things because we don't do things unilaterally. There's a flip side to that argument though. And that is you have to quiet the stronger side of the brain because the weaker limb may need to steal from that stronger side. So it's, you know, when you do bilateral training, I think that's earlier in recovery and then constraint induced therapies when they're more advanced, generally speaking, but um, I think there's room for both. So they would do strength training with the affected leg, standing weight bearing as much as they can with the affected leg. Sometimes that's just unweighting the unaffected side on a small lift or a phone book or something. Okay. Flexibility training of the lower extremity on the affected side, walking up and down stairs. We have an old saying, you go up with the good and down with the bad. But in this case, you would try to go up with the bad under the care of a physical therapist. Because unlike the upper extremity, eh, you drop something, who cares? But if you drop yourself, eh, you're going to have to re-listen to our, our falls episode. And that was a terrible episode. No, just kidding. Uh, you should listen to it. So walking up and down stairs, walking outdoors. Of course, walking is going to be part of constraint-induced therapy for the lower extremity. Uh, in chronic patients, intensive mass practice improved motor function, mobility, dynamic balance, weight-bearing symmetry, mm. and walking ability in chronic uh, post-stroke patients. There's also less falls and less fear of falling. Always a good thing. Yeah. Again, I'll put the entire protocol that we came up with in the show notes. Is that the same for the leg as it is for the arm, intensity-wise and time-wise? Let's say yes. So the the dosages is still going to be that half an hour to three hours a day. The thing is about the lower extremity, these are big muscles doing really powerful movements, often weight bearing. So there's a lot more calories burned. So you got to take into account the more intensive energy consumption. And again, maybe paying attention to your body. Oh yeah, of course. Can I tell a quick story about my daughter, Emma? Sure. So she's training for the marathon, the Flying Pig Marathon here in Cincinnati. You know, I, I advocate against these long runs, but you know, we we always ran a lot when we, as a, as younger people, and I don't do it anymore. But yeah. Anyway, so uh, she's training for the, and she calls me. She was supposed to do ten miles today. She calls me and she says, "I've done a mile and a half, and I don't feel like running, and my hip hurts. Should I just go to the gym and do the elliptical?" And I'm like, "Yes, listen to your body, because sometimes yeah. it's a rest day, and you you just don't know until your body says it's a rest day." Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So my daughter, oh, my kids are CrossFitters. Yeah. My daughter, she's getting older and wiser. When I was talking to her the other day, she said, I quit the gym. I'm tired of hurting my body like that. I don't need to lift all of that weight. Yeah. yeah she's just doing, she's doing workouts that she enjoys now. Wow. Well, yeah. that's good. Growth that's, is good. It sure is. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. All right. The East MAFOs, I mentioned that as a possibility, and I explained what that is. Then there's partial weight supported walking where you're held in almost like a parachute harness, and then you're made to walk usually faster than you can walk, but the harness holds you in case you stumble and fall. And people are willing to take more risk if they know they're not going to get hurt. Yeah. But then when they transfer to it, to uh, overground walking, it's their walking is quicker, their balance is better, falls, less fear of falling, et cetera, et cetera. Is that usually done in an outpatient setting? Yes. It's a big, typically very expensive piece of equipment. Yep. Rehab hospitals will have. The other thing I wanted to mention, it's not on my list, but a split treadmill, it's this crazy technology. So you know how treadmills, it, it, the, the surface goes backwards and you're walking forwards. So you stay in the same place. Imagine if it was a split treadmill and on your weaker side, that part of the treadmill, you had to walk faster. Now, and you would be harnessed, right? Be protected. Now, when you get into overground, the overchallenged weaker limb would now catch up and the gait would be more normalized. That's pretty cool. Now, I've never actually seen a split treadmill and I've been in dozens and dozens of rehab hospitals, but still it would be a great technology for somebody to really get after. Then the one I really like is called compelled weight bearing. And the researcher is, his last name is A-R-U-I-N. We'll put it in the show notes and he calls it compelled body weight shift. And it is just a small shoe lift, a little bit more than half a centimeter under the strong side, forcing you to the weaker side. But you've got to do it with a therapist, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's only done during PT and then they take it out so that you can go home. Yeah. So don't say, we heard on Nagas and Neurons and we should stick a big lift in my shoe. And now my wife, she's got a high heel on one side and a flat on the other side. I don't think it's working Nagas and Neurons. I don't like them. Yeah, don't do that. Listen to the research. We'll put in the show notes. Um, The PT then worked with this small shoe lift under the unaffected side, forcing use of the affected side, muscle strengthening, balance exercises, and even the new step, which you'll remember is a reclined bilateral trainer. Are there minimum requirements for participating in a lower extremity constraint-induced therapy program? There are. For this particular treatment option of lower extremity classic constraint-induced therapy, where you're doing lots of repetitions, for our study, it was walk with no more than a straight cane and or an AFO, ankle foot orthosis, although the actual treatment would be done without the AFO. Lower extremity deficit as defined as contact guard or less when walking. That means that somebody's with you in case things go south, but you can pretty much walk on your own. We also asked for five degrees of dorsi and plantar flexion. That is an arc of 10 degrees. No cognitive deficits as evidenced by a score of less than 80% on the mini mental exam. All this stuff is commensurate or pretty much equal to the upper extremity. So, Uh, no hemorrhagic lesions. We just felt like it was too dangerous that they may burst a blood vessel if if they already have weak vasculature as evidenced by the previous hemorrhagic stroke. No excessive spasticity, a three or more on the modified Ashworth, and no excessive pain, a score of four or more on the visual analog scale. But look, any therapist worth their salt is going to move these numbers around. Even the 10, 10, 10 rule that we talked about last time, last episode, what if they're 9, 8, 14? What are you going to do? Kick them out? No. Whatever they have, use, and then chip away at their present active ranges of motion. It's just more challenging if they can't actually grasp something. But all these things, even the mini mental, you can play with these numbers as you see fit. I think that's really important for people to know because, you know, when you're a rule follower, like I am, you <laughs> think, well, <laughs> well, I think this is where clinical reasoning comes into play. And- 
therapists using their smart brains. So there is a the transfer package that Ed Taub is so obsessed with, and he says it's an essential part of this. I would argue maybe it's not always, but there you go. So one of them is a behavioral contract. It says everything that you expect out of the patient that's doing constraint-induced therapy, what they're going to do at home, the paperwork they're going to fill out, and their commitment of time. That's one of the things that keeps the dropout rate so low is that we get a commitment from them right up front and they see it written in black and white. There are lots of clinics that have constraint-induced therapy programs that still use the behavioral contract, and it's not a bad idea. In fact, in ours, we got them to sign it, and also the caregiver signed it as well, because we wanted to make sure, or they co-signed it, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do something if, if the person that you live with isn't on board with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Support is a big factor in success following a brain injury. We did not, we eventually did not exclude people that were single. Um, I've heard from some people that have had brain injury that the fact that they weren't married forced them to get better quicker. Yeah. Because if you don't have your husband finishing every sentence for you when you're slightly aphasic, all of a sudden you become a whole lot less aphasic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but- I've talked about my friend Anne before. She lived alone. And she, she was like Kathy. She was super motivated. She didn't have the results that Kathy Spencer had, but she did pretty darn good for herself. Yeah. You can imagine how taking constraint-induced therapy away from somebody because they were single, that'd be unethical, straight up unethical. Yeah, it would. So that's one thing, the behavioral contract, get them to sign it, just, you know, at least read them the riot act. Another thing is the donning and doffing schedule once they get home. When do they put the constraint on? When do they take it off? And that's important because you want them to confirm to you with paperwork, hey, this is when I put it on. Then, but then we had dinner and some people came over. So I took it off, but then I made it up at the night, you know, whatever it is that they have a schedule that they show you. I think that's important too. And I, I included that in the mirror therapy program that I developed, I think that when you write out what you're doing, A, it shows you what you've done. If you miss a day and then another day and then another day, it's easy to think that you didn't miss as much time as you did miss if you're not keeping track. Yeah, that's true. Just like when you're at the gym. Mm-hmm. I always want to keep track of stuff. Yeah, get you. it keeps you focused. Now we mentioned, and this was true for the upper and lower extremity, we asked for a mini mental score of 80% or higher. And the reason that we chose to do that, and maybe clinicians that are listening to this choose to do that, is because you want to make sure that they know, do they understand when they're being unsafe, why they're doing the constraint-induced therapy, what they're doing, the scheduling stuff any home exercise program. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff that they have to remember. Now, sometimes the caregiver can kind of be the yin to the other person's yang, and sometimes that works out. But definitely get make sure they have enough cognition that they don't get hurt. Yeah. The other thing that I mentioned before, part of the transfer package is this motor activity log. And the motor activity log, they just say what they did, how much they did did of it, and um, how well they did it. They score themselves on how well they do it. And we actually use that as data because we look at the scores. Are, do they feel like they're moving better? And also the caregiver scores it as well. So we get double the data out of that. But it's just a good way of reminding them, hey, at home, you're not sitting around. You're working on your affected side. And that's about it that I have for constraint-induced therapy. It Ooh. only took us two episodes. That's not bad. I want to um, comment on something that 
you included in in your email response to Sarah. And that's where you said, remember, there are no overnight miracles. So just to kind of reiterate that this is a process and that it will take time. Because I think it's easy to get frustrated if you don't think that you're seeing change, which again is why it's important to measure your outcomes. So set your weekly or monthly measuring schedule and make sure that you're measuring using the same strategies each time. Yeah. And for therapists, I would strongly recommend that you do something that's incredibly motorically challenging, whether it's a musical instrument or a new sport, whatever it is that challenges you, learn to juggle so that we keep in touch with that childlike part of us that gets frustrated when we can't do things really well. So it just allows you to get inside the head of people that have had a brain injury and they're trying to come back and how difficult motor learning is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And reminding all of us what you keep saying is the movement doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be pretty and let just letting people move how they move don't make the perfect the enemy of the good is that what you're saying yeah i am <laughs> like that a lot yeah and maybe we can put some of those precautions in the show notes as well the inclusion exclusion crate oh the ones about um mini mental and making sure they're cognitively intact enough to do yeah we can do that yeah that and yeah just to, so that people remember that there are some precautions to be mindful of with constraint induced therapy like for example when you're doing the stairs yeah like that kind of stuff just so that deal. they stay safe yeah absolutely okay well great Thanks, Deb, at it, Stella. I had super fun. This was awesome. Yeah, this was good. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.